Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I will be chatting with Dr. Sarah McKay. Dr. Sarah McKay is an Oxford University-educated neuroscientist, educator, presenter, media commentator, author, and director of the Neuroscience Academy. She teaches coaches, therapists, teachers, and professionals how the brain works and practical ways to harness its potential. In this conversation, we discuss an overview of how the brain actually works, we unpack the nature versus nurture debate, how stress impacts the way we think, feel and behave, common ways we respond to stress and uncertainty, the science of sleep, the neurobiology of movement and much, much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarah McKay. Welcome Dr. Sarah McKay to the School of Wellbeing. Thank you for hosting me. It was a delight. <laughs> I'm so excited to share this conversation because I think for so many of us, the brain is like a mystery. Mm. We're not quite sure what happens in there. So I'd love to start this conversation with getting an understanding of what sparked your curiosity in the brain. Um, I must say what still sparks my curiosity in the brain is that I don't know what happens in there either. <laughs> still, <laughs> after all these years. Um, I often joke that I met and fell in love with the brain in my first year of university when I was sort of doing a health sciences first year back in the early 90s. And there was, I was in a lecture, a psychology lecture, and the lecturer was, we were talking about synapses, which are the connections between two neurons or brain cells in the brain. And we were kind of going through the biology of how they work. And I just thought it was a really, it was just such a cool mechanism like this is how our brains work at the cellular level and I still really love understanding how the brain works at the cellular level all these well that was the early 90s we were how many many years ago and then we were also sent off to read a book by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks which is called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat which sounds like a strange title if you've never heard of it if you have heard of it you will know exactly why I was so inspired but he, he, this neurologist, Sachs, wrote these amazing case studies and stories of all of the peculiar things that go wrong with people when things go wrong with their brains. And it was, I was so utterly captivated by all of these stories. And the, 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 the case in which the book gets his title from is about a man who has a strange kind of visual problem whereby he would mistake everyday objects for other objects. And in this instance, he thought his wife was a hat. Uh, and so that's where that curious name comes from. And I just thought the, the stories were so amazing and that kind of partnered up with this description of synapses. I was I was just captivated and talking to people about it and and then a friend who I now know went and studied, he went and became a dentist, I believe, I remember him saying, oh, there's this new degree discipline at Otago University. I was in Canterbury at the time. He said, a neuroscience. And I went, oh, that sounds cool. So I went down there and... Um, you know, it's kind of my, that was it from, from then on. Um, moved my degree discipline over to, to neuroscience and it's carried me through ever since. And I still think synapses are the coolest thing. When I met my husband um, in a, at a party, pretty drunk on gin, 
I, I, was, I talked to him all about synapses even then and he stuck around. So um, I'm still happy to talk about them now. <laughs> that is so beautiful and I love that that curiosity is still sparked within you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, Neuroscience is such an incredibly broad, deep, rich subject and there's so many um, ways and is it, and, and I, I mean, I love the scientific method and the kind of the pragmatism and the logic involved with exploring an idea um, with quite a lot of precision, but that has a lot of can have a lot of meaning behind it. And I suppose for me, the joy for the work from the work I do now, I spent many years in research and education that um, I get to talk about neuroscience, but at the same time talk about things that matter to other people. So I've written a book about women's brain health. So I get to talk about pregnancy and motherhood from the perspective of neuroscience or menopause or puberty. You know, you can talk about health, you know, mental health, depression, anxiety. You can talk about aging. There's so many things that matter to us as humans. And then I get to approach it from a neuroscience perspective. And people are really kind of innately interested in that as well. So um, you know, I get to bring my favourite things together, which is really just having chats. I like just talking to other people about all kinds of things, but from but but to then bring my love of neuroscience into it, um, I can't imagine doing anything else. Oh, it is just magic. And I know from reading your book that energy comes through. There's the science, but then the real relatable stories where you think, oh, that makes sense. You know, there's a pattern yeah. behind all of this. So could you give yeah. us a general overview of how does a brain actually work? Oh, God, I don't know whether you can do, 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 do that. I suppose the way I think about it, I have to kind of step back and rather than getting down into the synapses because you can never explain how a brain works by zooming all of the way in. It's like trying to explain how a, a car works by zooming in and looking at the ball bearings or I don't know what else they have in pl- cars, spark plugs. I'm not sure. <laughs> You've got to kind of like take a big picture perspective. And essentially, I always think about the brain sitting in the middle of everything, in the middle of the body and in the middle of the world. And, you know, our brains evolved initially and primarily to move our bodies around the world so we could sense and interact with the world around us and go searching for food and know what was in front of us and go towards the light or, you know, towards the food or away or sleep, you know, find somewhere safe to sleep. So essentially, it had to evolve to sense what was going on in the world and by the same token manage that the body's metabolic demands as it moved or as it was you know not requiring food anymore so in a sense the body's receiving this constant stream of data from our biology I call it bottom up so the brain kind of sits in the middle of our bottom up biology the outside in world and there's also this curious thing that is especially as humans we have this top-down influence of our lived experiences and memories, our thoughts, our expectations, our emotions. And the brain is constantly receiving all this data from the body about the state the body's in, sending information back down to the body to guide the body, whether that be to move the body or to digest food or to monitor our heart rate, to interact with our immune system. The list there is endless. Um, Receive information from the world, whether that be whether the sun's up, whether it's getting dark, who are the other people out there we're interacting with, um, news feeds, um, you know, the temperature of the environment. There's a constant stream of data coming in. A lot of it comes in through our visual system, 
visual visual system and, and the visual input is really important to us humans. Um, and then finally, there's this curious human thing, that this sort of awareness that we all have, that we have our own thoughts, we have our memories and we have our expectations and we have this constant meaning that we are making of our body's place in the world. And I suppose that's a big picture idea of what the brain does without having to understand how a synapse works. Oh, that makes so much sense. So it sounds like the three parts of that model is the body part, which is how we're actually feeling. So that will link to sleep, you know, all of those things. Food, your genes, your hormones. Yep. And then you have the outside in. So that's that social element. Who's in your environment? What's happening? What yeah, your lived environment, yeah, kind of what's right in front of you, your computer screen all the way out to looking at the sunrise or, you know, the information that's coming in from watching the, new, the news because we all do a lot of that these days. <laughs> um, there's a lot of out, the outside world gets into our body through our senses and we can also eat the outside world as well and breathe it in. Excellent. And then so the top down is more like our internal top down, how top we... Psychology, our mind... There's lots of words we can use to describe all of that. Um, it's a bit fuzzy around the edges. That so it's almost bit... like how we interpret what's coming in. Is that yeah, part yeah, of it? Yeah, it's not, but also it includes, I suppose, our self awareness. Some people might call it consciousness. It might be our thoughts. It might be, um, you know, our brain's interpretation of what's going on in our body based on what's happening in the outside world, which we could perceive as an emotion. Um, so kind of the meaning that we make consciously or subconsciously of, uh, you know, we're not we're not little mice scurrying around, not telling, you know, thinking. We're, we're constantly kind of telling ourselves stories. So all of that top down, all of that, I, I kind of, all of that mind stuff I, I, I put in top down. And it's a, it's a real, it's a much harder concept to grasp than thinking about biology and thinking about the outside and world. Because um, it's it really comes down to your ability to be able to describe your individual experience with what 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 that is and what that means. Absolutely. So that takes us straight into this whole concept of nature versus nurture. Mm. Yeah, and one how we distinguish one. that. Yeah, one of my favorite favorite topics. And it was really that kind of formed the core of my PhD research. Actually, um, I was really interested in and still am brain development and again I was looking at the visual system because that's especially to humans they are kind of primary sense in a way Um, and I was interested looking in the first sort of weeks and months postnatally and I was not looking in humans I was looking in lab animals but looking to see what determines how that brain wires up how do the right synaptic you know connections be formed and is it completely driven by genetic the genetic code or is it completely driven by the environment, i.e. what we see? Because we know certainly when we're looking at brain development very, very early on um, that the senses aren't as well defined and is able to perceive <laughs> um, what's going on as, you know, you, as, as, as they are later in development. And so what, what sort of drives that refinement during development? Is it nature? Is it nurture? And it turns out... Um, no, I would be surprised that it's a bit of both, and it's really actually hard to tease to tease the two out. It's really, really hard when we think about any aspect of our brain, any aspect of who we are as people. Was that determined primarily by our genes, 
and nature or is it determined primarily by how we were raised and the environment we're in? And the two completely influence each other and the, the scale may tip, you know, one way or another for certain aspects of who we are, maybe something like height or eye colour, um, but in terms of things like personality or preferences or, um, you know, um, behavioural responses to stressful events, for example, it's, it's really hard to tease the two out because we humans, we think a lot as well and we have to add that in there too. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And it can be hard at times if we've told ourselves that, well, this is just the way I am. Mm. You know, this is my biology. It's been in my family. This is just the way I am. And also I guess there's an invitation for people to think about, yes, there may be part that is that nature, but also is there an opportunity to look to the environment or to look to ourselves Mm. to do things differently? Yeah, and it, and it probably depends what you're talking about. So it's pretty hard to um, improve your vision yes. <laughs> in the last part of the brain, um, you know, apart from very, very, very early on in infancy to influence the development of, of that part of your brain's functioning. Um, and, you know, it's harder. It's very, very, very easy to learn languages and to learn multiple languages um, when we're very, very young. Because younger brains are what we call plastic brains. They go through these very sensitive periods of development. And whilst these sensitive periods of development for some aspects close down quite tight, like development of vision, um, even the ability to learn new languages outside of childhood, that ability doesn't fade away completely. But it's a whole lot harder to learn French when you're 13, as my one of my sons is finding out, as it would be to learn French as a infant native speaker surrounded by native speakers mm-hmm. of French. Um, and that's because the brain is much more plastic and, and requires fundamental experience, fundamentally requires experiences to, to guide that wiring up and that development very, very early on. So it's almost as if we could say that nature or our genes open this kind of window of development in which the environment um, or which nurture is, is fundamentally important that's very different from if we talk about other aspects that emerge from brain function, such as the development of something like empathy, the ability to think about what someone else is thinking and feeling. And that's a skill we can learn to develop all through the lifespan. Some people seem to be better practiced at it than others. That doesn't mean it's innate. It just means perhaps they have been more thoughtful about it or perhaps they were taught about it from a younger age. We can see a kind of a a shift in the development of that in, in early adolescence when um, young people, teenagers are really, really, really sensitive to what other people think about them. They all have this kind of imaginary audience. They all think everyone's thinking about what they're thinking. Um, and that's related to empathy because that's all kind of falls under that umbrella of social cognition, thinking about what other people are thinking and feeling. And that is reflected in development of the brain during adolescence. So we've got, you know, different aspects of who we are, different skills that we have, different functions that emerge from the brain, which are more or less influenced by nature versus nurture, but at different points in the lifespan. So it sounds like when it comes to the way that we feel and function and our well-being as humans, that there's potential for us to have a positive impact with our choices and environments in which we're in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and emotions in particular 
um, people are often led to believe that we're kind of born with basic emotions that are expressed in our face and they're kind of hardwired and from birth, but essentially they're not. The kind of the the, the more up to date understanding of emotions at the moment is we've all we're all born with this ability to sense what's happening in our body, but we don't really have the the ability to make meaning of that um, until we we learn to recognise a particular bodily sensation in relationship to a particular context we're in, person we're with maybe, you know, food we're eating, thing we're seeing out there, and then making meaning of that in some way and thinking, oh, well, I feel really safe and well-fed and loved and comforted when I'm lying in my mum's arms and I've had food. And so that maybe that means I'm happy. We, we kind of learn to make meaning of these particular experiences, that doesn't mean that you're you're only limited to understanding an emotional state and what and and your ability to change from that emotional state as a as a tiny baby. You can you know broaden your emotional thesaurus at any point in in life, um, and learning to kind of name emotional states with much more as we call it granularity, using much finer grained words instead of I'm sad or I'm angry. Are you feeling betrayed or are you feeling guilty? Or are you feeling remorse? Are you feeling shame? Are you just hungry? <laughs> um, you know, learning to reflect and name emotions is another one of the ingredients that the brain uses to experience that emotion itself. The meaning we make of it is an enormous part of that. We're not limited to solely one signal coming in from our body in relationship to one context. Um, and the more we When we learn that, when we learn that we can um, recognise, experience in the future new emotions we've never had before, um, that opens up quite a broad landscape in which to kind of go away and explore and and act. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I do love when you look at, if anyone hasn't seen it, the emotional emotion wheel, and all of a sudden you see all these words compared to happy, sad, mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And essentially what our brain does is, you know, it's making meaning all the time and then determining what we're going to do next. Like what does our body need to act next? And when you're using, and, and I think as Brene Brown often talks about the difference between this, the, the, the kind of emotion, guilt and shame and regret. And they're actually, if you're, you know, an, an English speaker, you kind of understand there's a slight difference between each of those, like guilt and regret and shame are different. Maybe regret opens up more opportunities to act in a more positive way going forward than guilt may or shame may. So, and, and they they can be, become even more defined and more refined and we can pull in langu- words from other languages. Like we've got this word Schadenfreude from the Germans that, that's kind of that sort of um, slight enjoyment that you may gain from seeing someone else's misfortune. Um, we didn't have a word to describe that in the English language, but as soon as you've got that word from the German language, then you kind of go, yeah, I kind of understand what that what that feels like. And there's some really cool online resources where you can go and you can look up words to describe emotional states from other languages. And it just gives you so much more to draw from. And I think most importantly, what it does is it teaches you how much agency you have over how you respond in any particular situation. It just opens up this emotional landscape for you to explore instead of being really, really limited and thinking how you are is the way you are because that's not how the brain works. Yes, I love that distinction between um, feeling like, well, this is it, I just have to be, compared to, okay, I'm going to understand it, I'm going to acknowledge it, 
And that's going to open a doorway to then maybe a different choice moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's, that's why that's one, we understand that from a neuroscience perspective, but I will like tip my hat completely to psychology, every psychologist and therapist out there because that's kind of the, the bread and butter of what they do is, is, is encouraging people to think about those, those, those kinds of ideas um, rather than I'm just telling you how the brain works. That, that's kind of the work the work of a lot of people in that space. So It's so interesting to me. So when we're looking at the brain, when is it uh, at its best? Uh-huh. Um, I would say middle-aged woman. <laughs> um, I don't think we could say, I mean, I, I suppose that's one of those questions where as a neuroscientist I would go, well, what do you define as best? Well, I'm thinking about what state are we in as far as maybe our biology, the outside in, top down, where it feels like maybe things are safe, predictable. When can it get on with doing what it needs to do and be functioning well? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So not like which point in the lifespan is a five-year-old at its peak or a 15-year-old. I think young teenage boys think that they're at their peak, <laughs> judging by what happens in my house a lot of the time. There's a lot of bravado and a lot of... Um, you know, self-assurance <laughs> compared to what I think I had at that same age, certainly what I am now. Um, I think, yeah, like I think if you yeah look at each of these 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 aspects from the bottom up, outside in, and top down. Well, and and we we see this in kids, and I I always used to say this to my boys when they were little, especially when the water's low, the rocks will show. So you know when you're you're um you know not not hungry <laughs> you're not tired you're not thirsty you're biologically stable and essentially our brain is constantly monitoring our body to find out what sort of state we're in and do we need to move you know to behave in a certain way or does it need to subconsciously change our state perhaps raise a lower body temperature or increase or decrease breathing based on how much carbon dioxide is in our blood um, are we slightly hungry, which will make us more alert because we need to kind of go out and seek and search um, for food? Are we really, really tired? You know, there's, there's the, our brain is constantly monitoring the, the, the metabolic and physiological state of our body to determine what, what is appropriate for the state we're in now and where we're meant to be going next. So that's why, you know, there's so much focus within health and wellbeing on just the basics of, you know, exercise and food and diet, uh, food and, and um, sleep, etc. Um, and then, of course, you know, in terms of, as I've said already, how did our what did our brains evolve to do? They essentially evolved to move us around the natural world and to interact with it. They didn't evolve to sit in front of a computer screen talking on Zoom all the time. Um, we're social beings whose brains need interactions with other people. <laughs> you know, perhaps our most native state is to be you know wandering through through the bush with a few mates on our way to find food somewhere that's 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 essentially our, our natural way to be particularly interacting with other people which I know right now when we're stuck with this virus that um, prevents us from being together is particularly hard and we're all tortured we've been brought to our knees by that um, and then I suppose from a top-down perspective um, learning to understand the state of your body and, and how it interacts with the world around you. So there may be, I suppose, different states of arousal or alertness which we may desire to be in at any particular point in time. 
you don't want to be kind of stimmy, alert and vigilant with focused attention, ready to kind of move when it's bedtime. <laughs> um, similarly, you know, if you're about, you, you know, you've got some challenge that you're, you're about to rise to meet, perhaps you're about to do a big presentation, you don't want to be fully fed and sleepy and ready to nap. You know, there's different states which are perhaps more desirable to build to be in at any particular point in time based on the context we're in so hopefully that's this bit of a long-winded answer yeah, that's really interesting what is a peak brain but a lot of it's around self-awareness and it sounds like being able to match your internal state with what you're trying to achieve and what the task desires yeah. so the best state yeah. looks different depending on what Absolutely. you're hoping to achieve yeah, and there's, you know, and then like kind of mind, kind of our perception of that comes in. And one really great example I can give there would be, um, you know, we could be in the same physiological state in the same context, but perhaps what we perceive about that might be very different, which will influence perhaps how we behave. So you've got a lion chasing a antelope. Well, they're both probably running full pelt as fast as they can through the savannah, but one's trying not to be eaten, <laughs> And one's really hungry. <laughs> so, you know, you're, what we as a human would then perceive as the state of fear versus the state of challenge and these two creatures, that's what we're kind of, I guess, is, you know, um, what we are seeing in those animals or imagining we were perhaps one of them, I suppose. Um, so, you know, that's why we humans have got this kind of added kind of complexity and component of like our thought about a particular situation, whereas your physiology and the world around you may be identical. There's, we've got that extra tweak in there, which is why we all respond differently to different situations. So are you sort of explaining why my dog, when he sees the lead, is always excited, like regardless, compared to maybe me like, oh, I can't be bothered? <laughs> Well, my dog, when he sees the lead, runs and hides. He's like, I don't want to go on another walk. I really like lying on the sofa. As soon as he's out, he's fine. I'm like, say to the dog, you've just got to, it's like you just get in the canoe and you start paddling, you just put your lead on, you start walking, and you'll be fine. It's just the thought of it. You don't like it. I don't know why he, he does. And sometimes you put it on him and then he'll like, he'll freeze. It's like, maybe if I stop moving, they won't, they won't notice and they'll forget about me. <laughs> uh, isn't it interesting? They how I mean, they're both dogs, right, in the same yeah. context. They're just, what, my dog is, like, emotionally fragile and neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> Your dog's <laughs> clearly awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really interesting because what gets me curious is now we have an understanding of how the brain works on a big picture scale not on the finer day, but big picture, there's lots of data coming in. It's trying to decipher it. It's doing what it can with what it's got. Mm. So what happens to our brain when there are significant changes? Example, lockdown. We can't be out doing what we're doing. Things of yeah. what were predictable have now become uncertain and unknown. Does that impact us? Yeah, absolutely, because the brain essentially is trying to figure out what to do next based on what it thinks the future holds. <laughs> and when all of a sudden all of the certainty and all of the things that we could rely on, a lot of the time without thinking are gone. Um, we, we're not, the sun's still going to rise every day at the moment, but that's kind of about where we're at, right? <laughs> you know, we just assumed our kids would go off to school and you'd be able to get up and go to work, and if you were hungry, you could just pop down to the shops. I mean, even just popping down to the shops for a bottle of milk now, you're like, 
oh, right, I've got to have my phone to check in and I've got to have my QR code and I've got to have my mask and, you know, it's there's, there's, there's a, <laughs> it's really stressful to even go and buy a bottle of milk. And so all of the ways that we have all seen ourselves respond and the people around us respond and, you know, there's different scales of that, of, of this, is pretty predictable and it's based on the fact that our brains are typically decide how to behave next based on the data coming in. When the data's gone, we worry. <laughs> We're kind of like going, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? We become quite hypervigilant, become like a meerkat because we don't kind of know what's next and that doesn't make us feel very safe or very secure. So we're constantly kind of looking around and we we lose our ability to be able to do very good risk assessments, things that may previously have not really concerned us, right, you know, tip us over the edge. And so we, we all understand what that feels like. Sometimes the tiniest little thing on one particular day will tip you over the edge into freaking out. Two years ago, you wouldn't have even perhaps noticed. So we become hypervigilant, we worry, we seek reassurance. We try and find out information to fill a data gap. How, I like actually started getting a sore thumb because I felt like I was spending so much time scrolling my phone, like trying to find out information. Um, and we've, many of us have had to really consciously try and disconnect from the news because we're so drawn to it because it gives us information to maybe try and build certainty in. So um, all, all of those responses are completely behaviorally normal they're like predictable and to be expected we would have responded the same way three or four years ago if perhaps you know perhaps you found a lump you had a scan the doctor said we'll call you in three days well, what do you do for the next three days well you don't know what's going to happen and so you would worry you would become very hyper vigilant little things would freak you out you'd probably read every single thing on the internet that you've ever found out about a lump um you know you'd seek information you'd seek reassurance some people would be desperate to be with other people. Other people would withdraw, not really want to be with other people. They'd need just time in their own mind. So there's reasonably predictable ways that we behave when there's uncertainty or, you know, and the, and the you know, fear of the unknown is a, is, is a real thing. And all of that kind of comes down to is just reliable feeds of data coming into our brain. So our brain can go, right, I know where I am and I know what to do next. At the moment, we kind of don't. Unfortunately, I think we're getting more used to those that 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 sensation, and it's wearing us down in a way. Um, and I think so. We're all in this like kind of global, or at least an Australian eastern suburb, eastern seaboard of Australian kind of boot camp, where we're we're, we're constantly in this like mental health training program, where we're having to draw on every resource that we've learned about all of our lives to kind of prop ourselves up to get through this. And that's also to be expected. It's completely normal. Well, so it sounds like when the brain's in an era, brain, us, when we are as humans in a space where things are predictable, they make sense, we can, we feel quite good. Yeah. But when we're in a space where things are unpredictable and we don't know what's coming, mm. that can really make us feel all of those things if that's anxious, yeah. hypervigilant, yeah. trying to control. Yeah. So that yeah. probably explains yeah. why some people run to get toilet paper and other people are trying to call their yeah, yeah, yeah. doctor friend to get the real facts. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And we we see certain people behaving in a certain way and we think, well, and the toilet paper thing is just really around scarcity. We hear that other people are going to get the toilet papers so and then we think, well, we better get it too because there might not be enough for me. So we're behaving quite um, you know, habitual, predictable ways 
we don't really behave in any really kind of thoughtful, logical way. We, we, you know, we become, I don't like to use the word primitive, um, but the ways we behave are pretty predictable. And we'd see that, you know, another instance where you may see that outside of this pandemic, and God, I just don't think anyone ever wants to ever be in an uncertain state again in their lives, might be when um, people, you know, you're buying and selling a house and when you're going through that kind of real, the real estate journey. And it's really, 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 really stressful buying a new house because you don't have a lot of control you don't know what's coming next. Obviously, that's your home, it's your security, it's your safety. But you can't control a lot of that process either. You don't know who's going to else is going to turn up to the auction. Um, you don't know whether you're going to be able to have enough money. You know, the future of where your home will be is incredibly uncertain. And that's why that's inherently stressful as well. Um, it's, for, it's for all of those same reasons. And for what if you've ever like house hunted and it's taken you a while, you probably do exactly the same thing. You're constantly looking at the real estate things online. You, you're, you know, you feel you're always worrying about it. You're thinking about it because there's a real sense of lack of control and agency over the process, plus complete uncertainty about what what options are out there for you next. So there's so many instances that we can think of um, in our day to day lives when we've experienced that before and. Um, and then I suppose it's really useful to look what worked or to those people who cope quite well in those situations, you know, what do they do um, and what can we learn from them to, to do too. So can we build our tolerance for this uncertainty? Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of, I mean, if you saw a psychologist five years ago, they would give you a really good prescription for building certainty back in. And a lot of it, and I just kind of go back to the the, the neuroscience model that I've explained is um, what can you do that you have control over, that idea of controlling what you can, retaining some agency um, over your current situation to dial down the stressful feelings um, so that you can kind of navigate what you can. And so some of those might be, we've so often heard, we, we get told, and it works for kids, you know, have a really detailed schedule, you know, write, write a, a really clear structured diary for the day, so you, you kind of know where, to, where what you're doing next and you've got lots of little tasks that you can kind of, you know, slowly step your way through and you'll get a sense of satisfaction. You're kind of um, building certainty into your day, essentially, with, with a schedule, even if it's a loose schedule. Instead of having this day where you're like, I don't even know what's going to happen, you've, you've got little goals to hit and what that does is it, it makes you look forward to something, it makes you feel rewarded, it, you get to set, retain a sense of agency and you're, you're literally building um, certainty in with your schedule, with those, with those little tasks and that's quite a well-known psychological prescription for building certainty back in. So there's that and there's other things like when we go and we walk around our neighbourhood, particularly if we're walking along a familiar path and I've got a loop that I walk around in my neighbourhood and it takes me about an hour. Sometimes I go clockwise, sometimes I go anti-clockwise, and I just find it so soothing. because I know. And, and the reason I know why I find it soothing and comforting is that I know what's happening next. I don't have to decide which way to go. It's just very comforting because I'm not going to get any surprises about what's around the corner. And if I do, it'll be someone, a neighbour I might run into, which is a nice little social connection. Um, moments. So there's there's great comfort that comes from walking a familiar path. And that's why a lot of people in this pandemic have talked about how they're watching old movies, they're watching old TV shows, you know, stories where they know what the outcome's going to be. <laughs> there's no surprises in there. 
There's a time in life for curiosity and adventure when you're emotionally resilient and when your stress levels are able to cope with it. And it might not be the time for everyone right now. Um, so again, just these ideas of building, building certainty back in. And when you exercise and you move around the natural world, you're kind of sending signals to your brain going, I'm not helpless. I could decide to walk down this road and turn left. You know, I, I do retain some choices and that means you don't find yourself in a learned helpless state where you just kind of give up looking for options, um, which is when you start spiralling down towards depression. And that's that's essentially kind of what happens when people get depressed. They feel like there's no options and they don't seek out any solutions. So even if it just involves going for a walk around a block, that prescription is not just for your physical health. It's to remind your brain that you can still make choices. Yeah, it makes so much sense that if we can build in predictable patterns that's probably why habits routines rituals are so powerful because it's telling our brain you don't have to think about it yeah we might keep getting a bit sick of that by now i'll grant everyone that (laughs) you're probably sick of our routine of the neighborhood yeah i think a part of and i honestly think a part of that's just the current date of where are we now end of august 2021 you know people are starting to get a bit restless <laughs> um, because sick of the predictability. Like, <laughs> we kind of feel like the end might be more in sight maybe there's a few goalposts out there that we can kind of see within reach we just want to get there um you know I'm talking about like kind of vaccination goals mm. and things like that um so you know there's and that again that's predictable that people are starting to get restless because they kind of feel like the end should be more in sight. We keep getting told, no, just stay where you are, stay where you are, stay where you are. So there's there's a restlessness emerging. I'm kind of picking up that vibe. I don't know whether you are. You probably are in Melbourne. <laughs> um, there's, you know, there's these, these ways that we all, all respond. And, you know, the other thing that we're seeing right now a lot, which is, again, a predictable human behaviour in times of stress is there's the othering of people the state versus state thing we've got going on here in Australia, which is just toxic and nasty and evil. And it's this othering of people because what we want to do is just keep ourselves safe. And so, you know, we see anyone as a threat. We've lost the ability to determine what is a risk versus what is safe. Mm. And we start to see other people as vectors of viruses, therefore they mustn't be safe, therefore they are the other. And so this othering we're seeing is, again, a really predictable human response to ongoing stress. Um, we just, I think, you know, it could be incredibly damaging if we don't recognise it for what it is. And it sounds to me that having some idea about how our brains work is pretty important because it gives us that aut- autonomy and then also how to nurture our brains so it has the opportunity to reconcile all of these Mm -hmm. changes that are going Mm. on so Mm. could you tell me a little bit about the impact sleep has on the way Mm. (laughs) that we function my favorite I laugh because it's my favorite topic I think sleep is perhaps the most underrated human skill it is one of my favorite things I'm very 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 good at it I reckon I could I wouldn't don't know whether I'd go to Australia in the Olympics I might go to New Zealand in the Olympics (laughs) and sleep and win the gold medal but um 
it's the most important thing we can do for our brain. If you don't have, if you have a whole night of just severely disrupted sleep, as you may have when you've got a new baby or you're up all night partying, or you feel terrible the next day. We all know how bad we feel with that one good night's sleep. And there is a, must be a pretty good reason for our brains to send us into an unconscious state for a third of the day, for a third of our lives, leaving us so vulnerable. There must be a very, 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 very good biological evolutionary drive for us to be unconscious for a third of our lives Um, because it's left us so vulnerable, um, yet we, you know, we do it anyway. Um, So I think we need to respect that we evolved on this planet that spins on its axis that goes around the sun and if there's one thing we can be sure of with absolute certainty the sun will rise the next morning and it will go down at night Um, and we need to recognize and understand that every cell in our body um, is 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 really tightly linked to that to the the rising and the setting of the sun we've got a kind of a, a a chronological biological clock ticking in every cell of our body um and all of the you know all of the stories that you've heard, that you've read, that your mum told you, that you may or may not want to buy into, but the idea that when it gets dark at night and melatonin is released from um, a, a part of our brain to signal to our brain that it is time to start, our brain and our body that it is time to start getting ready to go to sleep, there is, it, it's very unwise of us not to follow along with that. Um, and then to respect that, to harmonise our lives with that. I know for shift workers in particular, that's really, really difficult. And I'm not sure that's a natural healthy state at all, but that's how it is for some people, unfortunately. Um, and I, that is the one thing that is a non-negotiable for me, no matter what. And I'm now at the point where I'm wanting to go to bed before my boys. And then they want to come in and jump around and punch each other up in the room and I'm in bed and all that kind of stuff. It's a bit difficult. So for people who don't love sleep um, or don't feel excited by it and almost get anxious by it I because it's something. Understand. Yeah. I can't understand. I just don't understand them. I'm sorry. Should... <laughs> what, what, what can we do to support them knowing that yeah. sleep is so important and so many people are yeah. sleep deprived? Well, I can give you some some more facts. So, I think one one recent one of the more recent discoveries in neuroscience. There's not many new big discoveries like this recently. Is that when we're asleep, our brain essentially cleans itself overnight. It's like that. You know, the garbos come in and sweep the streets and remove the rubbish away overnight. We need to sleep for that to happen. If we don't, we see the build up of the various kind of the detrius of our brain's daily actions, and that that's not cleansed away. That does things like increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease. You don't want that. Um, we also know that that's when memories are consolidated. So everything that you have learned and experienced during the day when we are asleep at night, there's various um, brain waves that are kind of activated, which go to consolidate a lot of the memories and the things that we've learned. So your memory will be better. Um, you'll have far better emotional regulation. Your mental health will be better. Your metabolic health will be better. You name a disease. Um, that is not impacted by sleep, I I doubt you'll be able to find one. So it is intimately and deeply entwined with our physical and our mental and our brain health. So there's all of that. Um, I am also a strong believer that people need to develop, like you said, some people freak out with the thought of going to sleep. They haven't developed really strong positive associations with sleep, and that's why we hear so much about rituals around bedtime a lot of them have got a biological basis. So 
One, which many people don't realise is how tightly linked our body temperature is to our ability to sleep. Women going through menopause often learn about this for the first time because your thermoregulation is kind of screwed up a bit by the roller coastering of estrogen in particular. It, it changes how well the hypothalamus in our brain is able to regulate body temperature. Um, so that's why we're told have a nice warm shower before you go to bed because that heats your body up and as your body cools down, that doubles down on one of the signals from melatonin, which is to drop your body temperature down. That's why if it's a really hot night, it's harder to throw the heat off from your body so you find it much harder to fall asleep. And if you're in a really cold room, you kind of cosy up and then your body, as your body temperature cools down, you fall asleep. That's why animals like foxes and my dog and cats curl up in a tight little ball when they're going to sleep because they're warming their bodies up so when their bodies cool down, they fall asleep. Um, and we're all pretty familiar now with the idea of not having bright lights and computers and TVs and iPhones in bed at night because we're mucking up with that light-dark signalling in our brain. People find it really hard to give that one up, but the benefits for me are pretty, are pretty clear and pretty obvious. And also, I'm a napper. I love my afternoon naps. I have short strategic afternoon naps if I'm sleepy at about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Um, and because I just allow myself to indulge in that, I set an alarm so I don't sleep for very long, I'm really happy to lean into the sensation of feeling sleepy um, and just allowing myself to kind of wallow around and how, and how good it feels to honour my biology by sleeping, even if it's in the mid-afternoon just for, for a really, really short amount of time. So I think all of the things that we're encouraged to do um, in terms of sleep hygiene, as it's called, have a, have a really good solid biological basis. So it sounds like that shift in temperature is important to think about, mm. getting some natural light, reducing that sort of artificial light, and then also just thinking about our relationship with sleep. And one question I have for you is some people say, well, if I nap, I won't sleep at night. Can you sort of explain that? Well, you will if you nap for too long. So there's a big difference between a Saturday afternoon nap when you're perhaps nursing the last vestiges of a hangover from the night before um, or you're catching up on a week's sleep. That's not what I talk about when I talk about, and you'll hear me use the word strategic afternoon nap. So I'm one of those people that I get to about 2.30 some days I'm not right now, even though it's around 2.30 because we're chatting um, and I just start to feel like I'm fighting off the sleep. And for years I used to fight it off and, you know, between two and four I would just not get anything done because I just wanted to nap and I wouldn't let myself. And then after a while I learned a bit about napping and what I understand now is, and they teach this in the military and they teach this when they're teaching pilots how to fly long-distance planes, Um is that if you have a really short afternoon nap for no longer, no longer than half an hour, around 20, 25 minutes is ideal, then you get all of the benefits of having a sleep whereby you kind of clear away the sleep debt. And there's a there's kind of actually a kind of a there's some biochemistry behind rising sleep drive. So you kind of get rid of that urge to sleep. Um, you get the emotional regulation back, you lose the urge to sleep. Um, without affecting your night's sleep, because it'll affect your night's sleep if you fall into deep sleep. If you sleep for longer than an hour, then you are going to disrupt your night's sleep because you've slept too long. But if you have a really short nap, you get the benefits without the risk. And everyone I know who has refined the art of the afternoon nap and does short strategic naps, not only do they 
not have their sleep at night disrupted, I have asked everyone I met who has a strategic nap in the afternoon, so how do you sleep at night? They go, like a log. Mm. Actually, like a little baby, sleep begets sleep. Oh, that's so important. So it sounds like sleep is so important for our brain health. And another area that I'd love for you to just help us understand from a biological perspective and that neurobiology perspective is exercise. How Mm. important is exercise to the way that our brain functions? Yes, so so important and not necessarily for all of the reasons that people think. There's obviously the, the cardiovascular fitness and anything you can do to keep your heart you know, blood vessels healthy because they feed your brain is is really good and helps regulate your oxygen and regulate your glucose and all of the metabolic kind of needs of a brain and a body um, because they're not separate, (laughs) they're the same thing, Um, is this idea that I mentioned that our brains evolved to move our bodies through the world and the, the kind of the constant conversation going on between our brain and our muscles is incredibly important. There are so many relationships between muscle health and brain health that I think are not necessarily very well recognized. We even see this in people who are aging and getting older. We see there's a real tight correlation between cognitive health and muscle health, whereby someone showing mild cognitive decline, we can help treat that by getting them to engage in strength training, Um, lifting weights, you know, doing resistance training can help promote brain health because there's this really intimate correlation between the two. And everyone is pretty familiar as well with the idea that Physical exercise is is really, really useful for preventing and also treating mental health issues. And part of that is just being physically healthier is, is going to be better for you all around. But also these ideas that I spoke about before that it um, is rewarding, it gives you a sense of agency, it gives you a sense of reaching goals. It's, you know, moving your brain around the world in the way that the brain evolved to do. So there's all of these um, kind of boxes that, that that exercise ticks above and beyond the ones that you might automatically think of or naturally think of. Oh, that makes so much sense. So it sounds like putting this all together, our brain is very complex mm-hmm. and there's lots of nuances, but then there's simplicity in that the simple things that we can do to give ourselves more agency. So mm. back to basics, sleep. Yeah. yeah exercise, you know, routine, that predictability. You know, when you think of young children, my four-year-old's always asking, what's next, what's next? So if you can provide that safety of the structure, then you've got the ability to be able to think clearer and work through things. And then probably an invitation for people to notice how do they feel or function when things are uncertain, you know, when they go into that meerkat, oh okay I'm in this meerkat stage what can I do how can I start to settle that and I really appreciate you sharing this information because I think the more we can understand the neurobiology the patterns that essentially we're not unique (laughs) we you know we're just a bunch of patterns not unique (laughs) yeah we're not special but yeah uh, yeah, I I always say to my boys you're just completely developmentally normal and that is just so good because then I kind of know what I'm meant to do next. I absolutely love that. So to wrap up this conversation, I have four sentences that I'd love you to complete. Okay. So the first sentence is, I am inspired by. It is so nerdy to say I'm constantly inspired by reading academic neuroscience articles. I just... 
yeah, that's what I just love the, the new content and data and information and knowledge. <laughs> love it. And when life feels hard? I dive into the ocean. Magic. Yeah. The third one is an underrated skill? Is um, learning how to sleep. And I am looking forward to my ocean swim this afternoon and then perhaps a nap afterwards. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Sarah McKay. This has been an absolute privilege to share your knowledge in the School of Wellbeing. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for uh, for the invite. Did anybody else just fall in love with the brain a little bit more? Every time I talk to Sarah, I fall in love with the brain and its potential a little bit more. I love her enthusiasm and passion for neurobiology because it is so contagious. It gets everybody around her excited. And I love Dr. Sarah's framework when we can look at the brain because it gives us three doors in to making meaningful change in our life. Those three doors, bottom up, outside in and top down. So let's use an example. If you're feeling rubbish, you're feeling a bit flat, feeling stuck in a rut, bottom up factors. How are you sleeping? How are you moving? What are you eating? Outside in, who are you spending your time with? What's happening in your environment? Who can you reach out for support, some paid professional support? Really thinking about that outside in influence. And then our third door is the top down. What are your current expectations of yourself? Are they fair? Are they reasonable? You know, I have been working with educators through this pandemic and I can tell you 99.9% of the time their expectations are completely out of touch with reality. They're comparing themselves to their pre-pandemic selves. And still, their pre-pandemic cells was never up to the standards either. So we need to be much fairer with our expectations. So one of the key points of the top down is thinking about your expectations and thinking about, is it fair considering what's happening in my world? So before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to answer the two questions. From this conversation, What is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? What is your seed? And I'd love to hear from you. Share what's really resonating with you. And number two, probably the most important part is in the next 24 hours, what is one action you can take to improve your well-being? What are you going to do? Behaviour change requires you to change your behaviour. Got it? So take action. To keep in the loop with the latest news and special announcement and teacher-proof ways to feel good and live well, subscribe to my well-loved Thought of the Week, your free dose of wellbeing education and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Sign up now by visiting openmindeducation.com. To support the show, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes because it means the world to me to be able to share this message with as many people as possible. So please share, share with your friends, your family, colleagues, because I believe it's individual conversations that can move the collective forward. 
All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.